0: Welcome to Meet the Author at the Apple Store Regent Street in London. Would you
1: please welcome our guest moderator, Alex Baxter.
2: Hello. Hello, everyone. Thank you very much. My name is Alex Baxter. I'm a presenter with the BBC. And we're all here because we want to hear from Boris Becker, three times Wimbledon winner, the youngest ever winner of Wimbledon. He first won it when he was 17 years old. And we're celebrating the fact that he's written a book about his Wimbledon experience coming out very shortly and available on iBooks. So let's welcome Boris Becker to the stage.
1: Hello. Hello. Hi, Boris.
2: Hello. Thank you. Good to see you. So as I was saying, we're here to celebrate your book that you have come out, celebrating 30 years since you first won Wimbledon. Yeah. You were 17 at the time. What was it like being 17 and winning Wimbledon?
1: Well, it was as big of a surprise to me as it was for (laughs) everybody else, believe me. Um, The beautiful thing about youth is uh, that you're not always aware of what you're doing. You just live in the moment. You're thinking about now. Uh, So when I started the whole grass court campaign 30 years ago, the first tournament I I played and actually won was in the the Queens Club. Uh, I was also the youngest and unseeded, and everything. So once I I got to the final there and won it, um, the losing finalist, Johan on Creek had this famous quote of, if this guy from West Germany is going to play anywhere close to what he's played today, he's going to win Mumbleton next week. So obviously the whole media room laughed at him and then uh, nobody was taking his, his uh, wise words or his bets. Um, and I didn't really notice anything um, about it anyway because I was just in the zone. But when I got to Wimbledon the week after, uh, my, my main goal was, obviously I was unseated, that I, I, I'd, I'd like to play on center court. That was my, my main ambition. I was a little boy growing up in West Germany and my hero in those days was Bjorn Borg. The reason was he kept winning on center court at Wimbledon and I said, one of these days when I'm big and I'm strong, I want to play on Wimbledon center court, just like Bjorn Borg. So when the draw was made and I played in the first round, the American Hank Pfister, scheduled third on center court. Those were the days where Wimbledon center court didn't have a roof. So because of the, the bad weather and the rain, then eventually the Monday night match um, was called after a and half, I was losing. To uh, finished onto the next day on, on the Tuesday afternoon, so I already thought, well, I would play twice on center court uh, within uh, 24 hours. So one of my my main ambitions was done. But obviously, then I was going through the rounds, uh, and then you know I wasn't really thinking about the final or winning. I was mm-hmm. literally living in the moment, thinking about the very next match.
2: So you literally had nothing to lose going into it, really, and and watching videos of you playing that yeah map, that that tournament just to remind myself you really did have a very aggressive style of play. You came to the net an awful yeah, yeah. lot. You really seemed to go at it.
1: Yeah, that was my style of play. I was one of the first power players with a big serve. And, and you know, I think uh, you know some of my opponents still played with the uh, rackets out of wood. I mean, you can't imagine it anymore today, but not That's everybody played with a graphite racket in those days, some players <laughs> played with a wooden racket. Um, but obviously with, with my style and the, the power I had on the serve and the ground strokes, it was very much suited for foregrass. grass um, you know uh, obviously because of that I started you know winning more and more matches uh, and another thing we shouldn't forget we're talking 1985 right so the the source of information um, didn't exist we had no internet mm-hmm. there was no social media there was no no other source of information warning me about what I'm going to do tomorrow or the next week or the implications it might have on my life so I was literally living in a bubble you know, reading reading with very bad English that I had then. Not that I have a great English now, but I had terrible English then. Um,
2: <laughs> Thanks, Brittany. Try,
1: trying to read the Telegraph or the Times, which I didn't really understand at 17. So I was living in that bubble, going to practice court every day, and playing my match every other day until I really woke up pretty much in the middle of the second week because then the press conference were bigger, German media was flying over to, to England, and, and all of a sudden, out of this, you know, West German, uh, um, young tennis player became this sensation of maybe being the youngest.
2: And it's so interesting you talk about that, the fact that you were in a bubble, which players these days can't be. You know, here we are sitting in the yeah. Apple store on Regent Street. And it makes me wonder how different it must be to be a 17-year-old player now to how it was for you back then. Like, Do you think the pressures in terms of uh, constantly being aware of reaction to every move you make on Twitter, on social media, yeah. etc. Are, are the pressures greater or just different?
1: I think the pressures are different. You're aware of them now, because of the the very um, you know um, public world we're in now. I mean, every teenager has has an iPhone, I hope, and, and you know is, is is connected to his social media world. Therefore, you you constantly share messages and. and uh, and, and, and information and therefore whatever you do, uh, it becomes a bigger deal. Now, if you do something great in sport in your seventeen eighteen, 18, obviously you, the whole world press will take notice of you. Therefore, you know, after every practice of match, you're going to open your phone and you're going to realize, wow, what I've just done created world headline news. Therefore, the expectations become bigger. Therefore, the pressures become bigger. Mm. And I think that's the main reason why you don't see um, successful teenagers winning these days is because of that. They just can't handle the pressure, and, and they're not mature enough to you know, keep a cool head once they reach a quarter semi-final.
2: And also, we have the issue that players these days, they're, they're mic'd up, aren't they? So we can hear everything they say.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, when, when I, when I um, grew up, my, my tennis teachers were the likes of uh, um, Elina Stase, a played with John McEnroe, Yes. Uh, I played a lot with Jimmy Connors and and as again my English wasn't that great yet but they learned me a whole new vocabulary of English that I've never heard in school or, or from my parents so <laughs> so quickly I quickly, I, I quickly <laughs> <laughs> mature yeah. language-wise um, so whenever they kept talking to me on the court on the court I, I kept barking back at them now imagine nowadays um, Djokovic telling something to Federer and Federer telling something to Nadal and they, they respond to one another. That's impossible. First of all, they get fined. The umpires will give them warning. Therefore, and the fines
2: are huge, the aren't fines they? The
1: fines are huge. Like so they, tens they, of thousands they, of dollars. They can't do that. Um, you know, people sometimes complain that it's not enough emotions in the game today mm. and you don't see the characters. Well, we have the characters. They just have to be careful not to let it loose because otherwise you know, they, they can't play the next day because they're fine in the 80s it didn't exist i mean the amount of fines macman and Nastasa got, they had to win the tournament just to break even for the week
0: <laughs> just
1: just to just to you know uh, be able to pay the fines so that was my, my uh, school my beginning of becoming a professional you um, mentioned talking about uh, um, you know living in a moment
2: <laughs> you mentioned john Macroe and others uh, growing up you know splashing onto the scene as you did at age 17 who were your who were your main rivals
1: when I first got on the scene and, and winning Wimbledon at 17, the number one player in the world, it was McEnroe at the beginning of the year, but then Landl took over. Mm-hmm. So uh, when I played Landl in the '86 final, he was the number one player in the world, and, and he was that for a while. So I became, quickly became number two, uh, and obviously you want to challenge the number one, and Ivan was the number one. In the late 80s, early 90s, my toughest rival was Stefan Edberg. I played three consecutive Wimbledon finals against him, and we were changing one and two over three years, three, four years. Uh, the mid-90s, uh, the Americans came back with Sampras and Agassi, and my, my main rival on, on grass court was, um, was Pete Sampras. And, I, and up until he came around, I felt that I owned Wimbledon center court. It was my home and my house. So when he started beating me in, in one of the Wimbledon finals, I, I told him at the net that, you know, I used to own this place. I'm going to give you the keys now. You, had a new, you have a new ownership of Wimbledon Centre Court. And um, it, it, it was mic'd up. You know, it was uh, 1997. And when I got to the press conference afterwards, everybody knew already what I told them at the net. So it wasn't a surprise anymore. But that's, that's how I felt. And so those passing on the mantle. Passing on, on the mantle. Those, those you know, three or four players I mentioned were my toughest rival over my 15-year career.
2: But your career... It's evolved, hasn't it? It didn't end when you laid down the racket, if you like, because you have subsequently moved on to, what, 12 years of commentating yeah. the BBC. How did you find that transition?
1: Well, the question is always, where, where do you go as an athlete? You know, you're called old when you're 30 years old. In most other professions, you're still starting out. You're just making your first money. In sports, when you're 31, 32, you're, you're over the hill. So psychologically, that's a problem. You have to redefine yourself, uh, uh, what, what, you, what you write on, the, on the, um, the, the landing card when you enter England or, or America. You know, what's your profession? You don't want to write, I was an ex-tennis player. So, so it takes a little bit. And I, I, I felt comfortable with the media. I mean, it was, I was always on the other side of the red light. Mm-hmm. So I, I said, well, why don't I start you know, doing something that I, I think I know, which is tennis. Uh, uh, why don't I start you know, talking about it, commentating about it? And the BBC trusted me, and then uh, I started in 2002, and I did 12, 12 years, you know, uh, uh, in the row at Wimbledon final and that for a German, believe me, is not usual. You know, <laughs> we, we were not the most popular of nations in this country, but I, I happened to, to fall in love with the place a long time ago. So, so they gave me the trust, and I, 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 you know, I was humbled by it, and I. I felt I had a good insight because just a few years ago I was playing myself on that center court. So I, I, cha- I changed uh, the practice courts and uh, the tennis courts um, to the booth with John McEnroe. I mean For me, he's the best tennis commentator in the world. And I shared many moments with him. And, and you can tell that I like to talk sometimes. Well, he talks a lot more than me. Cool. So the battle is always, not so much what we talk about a match, is that who gets the mic first? <laughs> and then not necessarily we talk about the back end of the phone of the guy we're talking about it's about his back end or my back end who is going to be better so but the rivalry continues the this rivalry time continues. over the mic exactly. yeah, i wanted to
2: ask what it's like to be locked in a tiny box with you know the main rival of your uh, for a large chunk of your career for hours on end well it sounds like it's well, quite fun it's <laughs>
1: quite fun uh, and mostly because we uh, truly respect one another when we played one another we were fierce rivals and there wouldn't be there would be two people going in the booth and one was going to go out. Uh, we have matured. He became a family man. I'm, I'm a family man. So we became actually close friends now. Uh, and, and the challenge is always um, who's going to tell you more about his great stories <laughs> from back in the day. Um, uh, it got to the point where the BBC says, listen, the two of you in the one booth, we don't hear about the current match. So either one has to go or the other has to go. Uh, but uh, we, we, we take it with a you know, with a smile and, and, and we will move on.
2: And of course, the other arm to your new, this new chapter in your life, yeah. post actually playing the tennis, has been to be a coach and a coach to, to none other than Novak Djokovic. I mean, how did that come about?
1: Well, I was asked a few times already to become a coach of, of good players. Uh, when you've played on the tour for such a long time, the last thing is you want to go back on the tour as a coach. So I felt commentary and media work as such, you know, being based in one city was easier, was better from, for my family and me. Um, but what do you do when Novak Djokovic is calling you? You're going to tell him no. <laughs> you don't want to coach him. Uh, so, so when he called about, you know, 18 months ago now, 20 months ago, Uh, I had a serious sit down with my wife and with my family explaining this is is one of a kind guy, this is a real opportunity for me Uh, and she she said, listen, we we, we have support, That that is something you should do but that means I'm going to be four weeks in Australia and three weeks now in Paris and then obviously a month in London which is easy because we live here but then another month in America because you can't coach online. Right? You can't coach from back home, you have to be on the practice court. You have to be in the players' lounge. Uh, and, and we all agreed that this is, this is what we're going to do. And then I, I had a nice sit down with him. I wanted to know how much his fire burns, because when I put my, all my eggs in, you know, we, I, I want to go to Australia to win, I'm not happy with the semi-final mm. or final. And I realized that he was, he was really burning, he wanted to win a lot more than he has, which is not a small feat, because he was already number one and won a couple of Grand Slams beforehand. So, uh, we, we've bonded uh, very quickly and we found a new new um, uh, relationship. Uh, and, and, you know, now a year and a half later, he's, he's, he's back on the winning, winning track. Uh, he's back to number one. He's the current Wimbledon champion. Unfortunately, he lost the French Open last Sunday. I'm sure you guys saw that a little bit, but credit to Stan Wawrinka. He did beat Nadal in the quarterfinal and Murray in the semi-final. Mm. And I think that Friday, Saturday, Murray match cost him the final. It was a bit too much, even for Novak. But, you know, he, he, took, it, he took it with, with um, I think everybody's seen the ceremony. He took it as a real sportsman, he gave credit to his opponent. I think he won probably more fans with his behavior afterwards mm. than if he'd win another Grand Slam, even though it would have been the French Open. Um, that's the class act he is. Mm. Having said that, you know we lost, and we don't like to lose. That's the bottom line.
2: <laughs> Novak, he's written the foreword to your book. Uh, he, he's talked about the importance of the kind of eye contact that you give him from the sidelines. Uh, what do you think that you, you give him as a coach? Why specifically do you think he wanted? you rather than a, a, another former player? Is it just to do with the psychology of, of knowing what it's like to be under that kind of pressure or is there something particular in the style of Boris Becker that he was after?
1: <laughs> what I think most importantly uh, I face similar situations than he has. Yeah. Winning a Wimbledon final or losing a Wimbledon final. Uh, being you in, in this high pressure type of situations where you don't learn from the books you don't learn about talking to somebody you have to live and breathe them otherwise you don't know what it's like I think that that was the main reason Um, I'm 20s older than him I'd like to think that I've matured Uh, I like to think that I've I've weathered a few storms in my life uh, on and off the court and I I can talk to him as um, as an older brother that that has done exactly what he's done at the same age uh, he became a proud father uh, uh, last fall uh, at the same age I was father, became father for the first time. There's a lot of similarities. I, I struggled in my mid-twenties with a bit of motivation a bit of this and a bit of that. And then he went through the same spirit and I think that's the trust and the understanding and the respect we have one another. Is, is uh, We're a lot alike even though we don't look alike. Uh, uh, you know, he's, a, he's a daredevil on the court, he, he's a real street fighter, really you know, trusts everything he can. To win, yet within, within the bounds of, of reason and, and, and rules and regulations. Mm-hmm. Um, in the mid 80s, I was allowed to step over the line a couple of times, nowadays they can um, So there's a real understanding of one another. And yes, I, I was known to, to read players, to, to uh, have a whole you know, new, new aspect of winning matches that was called the mental game where I felt I was very confident and comfortable and, and usually the longer the matches wore on, the better I got. Mm. And uh, that that's something I, I talk to Novak a lot about, you know, how to how to take on a challenge, how to take on a fight, you know, what is it about? Is it about the first point, the first set, or is it about the last point? And and, and how, how matches vary. is mm. three of three of five matches are long, two, three, four hours. So when do you pace yourself, when do you, you know, be more emotional and, and and at the end of the day, it's, it's the ultimate challenge, one against one. Yeah. The only other sport that's liked it, it's boxing. And you know how, how these guys are. So uh, uh, I think those are the reasons, just to give you a few ideas why I felt that he called me.
2: Oh, well, Talking of the one-on-one, and we talked about rivalries of your era, a lot of talk about the rivalry between Novak Djokovic and Roger Federer, both great players. Do you have any insights into that?
1: Well, this is always the ultimate challenge, one against two. I mean, more broadly, we talk about the big four in tennis. That's Novak, Roger, that's Andy, and that's, that's Rafa. Uh, and these four players have won more in the last 10 years than, than uh, anybody else. So the moment, or the last year or so, it, it, it was Novak one and Roger two. And naturally, the rivalry with the competition is there. Mm-hmm. Two wants to have what one has, or vice versa. Yeah. So... Uh, uh, and I'm, I'm I'm surprised how well they all get along, considering how much is at stake. Oh. You know, they're they're real professionals. They're they, they're role models. They understand that not only only fans watch the finals, but also a lot of you know, families and kids. So they, they usually watch what they say when they swear. When that when that <laughs> <Usually>. might <up. laughs> Um But there's a real rivalry. You know, there there's there's um, uh, there's uh, uh, real professionalism about it. But of course, they're not going to dinner the night before the final. Of course they avoid each other in practice. It's normal. So um, I'm surprised I I get to ask that question sometimes because, you know, would you think the captain of Man United would go to dinner with the captain of Chelsea the night before they play the the final? Of course not. Would you think that in the World Cup last year that that Messi would have a a chat with Schweinsteiger the night before the final? Of course not. They're rivals, but uh, everything is done within the rules with a real, you know, sporting manner, and that's the main thing.
2: You mentioned there the, the big four players that we've got used to talking about over the past years, but of course, I don't know whether you would include Vavrink and Dimitrov into that uh, four. Of course, we had the upset at the French Open that you mentioned there. Looking ahead to Wimbledon, because of course your book is about your love affair with Wimbledon, what do you see? And also, are there any other players you know, in the top 100 out there that you've got your eye on as well?
1: Well, of course, you know, tennis is always the, the number one role. The next match counts. doesn't matter who you play. Uh, of course, you have your favorites, and, and Novak will be top-seeded. Roger will be second. Uh, of course, the plan is that these two guys meet in the final, but there are seven matches to play, and every match you play could be your last one. It would be a huge mistake to overlook any, any of the other opponents. Um, and you, you said it, uh, uh, Andy Murray... Is a big favorite in my eyes. You know, he's he's from here. He's got the home crowd support. He won the tournament two years ago, and he's he's on a real comeback trail. I believe he's playing better now than than before his back surgery. Uh, he's in fine form, and he close lost a close match to Novak in Paris uh, in five sets. Uh, they met in The Australian Open final it was a close match, so they you know the, the difference isn't that much. And 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 Andy's a an natural grass court player anyway. And then you would say Rafael Nadal, but he's been on a bit of a, you know, um, a lump, you can say. He was injured a while and he hasn't found his form yet. Having, having said that, uh, he's a two-time World champion. I would never ride Rafael Nadolov ever, as long as he picks up a tennis racket. But there are other players that are naturally suited for grass. Dimitrov is one. He was a semifinal last year. Uh, Milos Raonic, in my eyes, from Canada. He's a very good player on grass. Uh, Tomas Burdic, uh, from the Czech Republic, uh, has a great year already. So there are a number of players that on any given day, and that's the problem with grass, uh, you know, somebody with big serve and, and heavy ground strokes can hit you off the court. So at all stages, you have to be aware of who you're playing against. And then there's this, this resurgence of teenagers. Uh, there was a time when he said teenagers don't have a chance anymore. Well, that has changed with two young Australians, Nikugios, uh, Kokinakis, uh, They're both you know, very promising up-and-coming players. Kyrgios, in fact, beat Nadal last year in Wimbledon just to give you an idea how good he is. Then you have a, a guy from Croatia who's 18. He's called uh, Borna Koric. He's very good. And a young player from Germany who's 18 as well. Uh, uh, Zverev is his name, Alexander Zverev. So you have teenagers coming back into the scene. And again, you don't know how good they're going to be in five years. So uh, I, I know they're very talented and their breakthrough could happen any tournament. That's one what established players have to be careful, you know, watch the young ones, you know, see how they practice. Uh, 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 tennis changes every other month you know, you have your weaknesses and strength. you always have to be on top of your game and you have to find the motivation, inspiration every single time you go out because it's an individual sport in football, your leg can hurt and you, you single to your coach coach, take me out the rest of the team will take over in tennis you have to play the first and the last point
2: yeah. as I say this book is about really a love affair with Wimbledon. Of it course, is. You won it three times and maybe a bit of a love affair with the UK. We, I think we kind of like to think of you as a bit of an honorary Brit, but of course you <laughs> are actually German and you're That's a bit right. of a national treasure over there as well. But as I understand, you're now living full time in Wimbledon. You yeah. have been for the past a couple of years. Why, why have you decided to move here and how's that gone down in Germany?
1: Well, this is really the story uh, about the book. It, it's been 30 years since I first you know, started winning on St. Centre Court and I call it my home now. Uh, it's the place, place I've been most in my life. You know, this, this fortnight, is, it's been going on for a long time. You mentioned my tennis live, then I did the commentary. Uh, uh, then I did the coaching. It was always surrounded by, by you know, Wimbledon in one way or another. And it's a beautiful part of the world. Whoever wants to come out there, it's a real country feel. Half an hour away from one of the you know, most bubbling and, and most important cities in the world. That's really the charm of it. It's country living next to a real cosmopolitan city. Um, I, like, I like the comments I like the greens, I like the, the peacefulness of it. Of course, I like the fact that there's a club a few miles away from my house that was very important into my life. Yeah, I, call, you know, I made Wimbledon a place that, that was called um, the 7th of July 1980 for my second birthday. I was this unknown West German until the 6th of July. And overnight it became this, this you know, sensation, uh, a Wunderkind, they called me. Uh, and and, and you know, it, it meant so much to me on a, on a professional level and on a personal level that I call it home today.
2: And of course, lots of speculation in the media now about whether or not you're going to apply for British citizenship. Anything to say on that?
1: Um, <laughs> let's see. Obviously, I like, I like living in this country, uh, eventually we, we're going to think about it. Um, you know, we, um, our, our son is born here, you know, we love, love the UK, we love living in London, so it'll be a national progression.
2: You mentioned your children are uh, growing up here. I know that, when well, you talk about it in the book, that when you first started saying you wanted to be a professional sports player, your parents weren't actually that encouraging of it. They were from a professional background, or dad was an architect. You had to really convince them that this was a, a, you know, a, a potentially profitable livelihood for you. If your children come to you, do you think you'll be a bit more encouraging if they say, I, I want to be a professional sports well, player? I have four
1: children Uh, the oldest is 21 the youngest is five Uh, you have to put yourself back in in, we're talking mid-80s professional sports didn't really exist unless you were an American football player Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, you know European football players really they made a bit of living but it wasn't that that profitable as it is now let alone tennis players so uh, uh, when when you know the great managers in the days the Mark McCormack's and the Donald Dell's uh, came to my, my father's home um, asking uh, for how much how much money we have to pay to sign up your son my, my father showed him the door and said my son isn't for sale um, you know they weren't your typical tennis parents that would do anything uh, uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm very very proud of that I could always go back and they were my, my father and mother not my manager or coach Um, so it was uh, quite difficult to convince especially my mother to take a a leave of absence for two years Uh, and she said listen you better talk to the school principal to to tell him about because I don't think he is going to let you go so I was 16 little Boris goes there to the school principal obviously with my parents explaining him that I want to have a leave of absence for two years and he, he rightly said well if something may happen to you you can always come back but please come back within the next year so we can um, discussed that, that thing again. Well, within the year I won Wimbledon. So I came back, Wimbledon champion. I had, you know, hundreds of people from the school wanting my autograph. Yet, 17-year-old Boris, went to the school principal, had this interview, and he he kept on convincing me that I should come back to school in case something happens. And I said, Mr. School Principal, I've just won a little tournament in UK. It's okay. <laughs> I, I can hit the tennis ball and I made a little bit of money too. Yeah, but in case something would you need everything. So, um, again, the mindset was professional sports in the mid 80s really didn't exist. Yeah. And, and, and I was probably one of the first ones that started, that started making money out of it.
2: Fortunately, I think it all ended up okay, really. It was okay, yes. <laughs> it was okay yes, in the
1: yes.
2: end. It's been such a pleasure to talk to you. Um, I don't want to hog Boris. Does anyone from the audience have a question? Gentlemen, in the front
0: row. Actually, I think we've got some microphones coming around. Uh, there we go. Hello, Boris. Hello, Alison. Um, I've written it in my memo. I'm a great fan of yours. I remember the matches in Wimbledon very
1: much. Your first win against Kevin Curran. Why do you think servant volley has gone out of vogue? Players like you and Macron have become very rare. I follow
0: My follow-on question, after the Sam and
1: Federer effect, do you see a future-servant volleyer, volleyer stepping onto the courts ever again? Thank you. My pleasure. Uh, no, I think you, you raise a very good point. There was a long time where uh, the baseline players, I call them the counter-punchers, uh, started winning tournaments. I mean, uh, it's partly Novak's fault, it's partly Andy's fault, it's partly Raphael's fault, because they've been winning you know, all these matches from the back of the court, but there's a guy from Switzerland, Called Roger Federer who actually plays very, very um, well the serve and volley and more now than he's played before because he's realizing that's maybe something these baselineers don't like so much. And he's perfected his craft, you know, he's a seven-time Wimbledon champion. He's, uh, you know, one of the all-time greats, certainly the most successful. So um, there, is a, there is a chance, if you know what you're doing, to be still successful with a serve and volley game. You know, Having said that as well, uh, the young Australians, they play offensive tennis. Uh, no, they don't come to the net every time, but they play offensive tennis, they come after the first serve. They're looking to win the point, hitting a winner, instead of waiting for the opponent to make a mistake. I think that's the biggest change, and it really matters how good you are. I think it is possible today, but these Boehners have pretty good returns, so you better make sure your approach shot is good.
2: Uh, have you got another question for Boris? Uh, lady there in the denim jacket. Uh, I think there's a, yeah. a mic coming your way. Hi. Hello. Um,
0: I want to ask which of the following do you prefer more being a coach of a top player or being a top player yourself? Or can you not compare them?
1: I'm 47 now. So, a quick response to that I'm much better coach <laughs> than, than I'm a player. But when you're 27, you want to be the player. Uh, I don't think I would have been a good coach 10 years ago because my mindset was still the player. I, I wanted to, I would have coached my player the way I would have played. But that's wrong. Uh, you know, a coach has to think what's best for the player. And, and, and men- mentality-wise, you have to be, you're in the second row. It's about the player, it's not about you. Uh, and I think that has a lot to do with, you know, growing up, maturing and understanding what, what you need to do to, to make your player a, 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 a much better player. Um, uh, because of my playing history, uh, the understanding is there, the emotions are there, and I think the, the small details of, of winning and losing is there, but I'd rather coach these days than play.
2: Interesting question. Um, yeah, gentlemen, there in the back row. I think we've got oh, yeah. Wait, sorry, it me.
0: Yeah, sorry about that. I think the mic is coming.
1: Uh, the mic is coming. Hold on, otherwise we don't hear it.
0: Mr. Becker. Yes. It's great to meet you.
1: Thank you.
0: Um, I love London. But I think you should consider also becoming a Grenadian (laughs) citizen. (laughs) But I wanted to ask you, do you think that if the sets were shortened to three for the men, would their professional life be longer? Because I'm sure at a certain age when you physically can't do as much as you can, your passion is still there.
1: Of course, uh, the passion is still there now. But uh, we have rules in tennis, and I think they're very good. You know, a set lasts until 6, or you play tiebreaker until, until 7, I think that's good. Uh, there's always talk of changing some of the rules in tennis, I'm, I'm not so much for it, because there's a reason this game is so successful for such a long time. Yes, the invention of a tiebreak was good, uh, 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 just to shorten the, the, the sets altogether, you know, talking about the 1670s, 70s, mm. they played sets 12-10, 8-6, so the match would last even longer. Uh, uh with the television world we live in that that wouldn't be feasible but uh th- the fifth set is still open and not not too long ago there was the longest match of all time played at wimbledon uh, 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 john Isner won that uh, let me think the score was it 60 58 or 70 68 something like that ridiculous 12 <laughs> hours um, so you you've you got to be fit enough to play the game period you know whether you you're 25 or 35, it doesn't matter. You have to be good enough. You have to be fit enough. And if you can't do it anymore, you got to move on. Those are the rules. Yeah.
2: Oof, it's all and I agree awesome.
1: with, with uh, the, the island you live in. Uh, it's a beautiful part of the world, yes. <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> um, lady there in the front row to wait for the mic. Hi. Um, I think a lot of people were quite surprised to see Andy Murray hiring Amelie Moresma as his coach because you don't see many women on the tour coaching the men's game especially. Um, do you see this as something that's going to take off and do you think you're going to see a lot more uh, female coaches for the men's game in the coming years?
1: I, I must admit I was surprised as well. Um, I, I um, like the relationship we have with Ivan Lendl. Uh I like the relationship we have with Danny Valverdu. Uh, and I didn't know that there was a relationship between between Amelie and him, and, and and so forth. But at the end of the day, you're either a good or bad coach. Doesn't doesn't matter whether you're you're you know a man or a woman. She's certainly a very fine coach. They've had great success the last twelve months, and that's really his choice. Whatever works for him is the right decision. Uh, I haven't seen many more female coaches on the men's tour, though. Um, I guess I guess it's still a an unknown territory, and, and, and uh, male players are still careful with it. Uh, I understand on one hand, on the other hand, you have to do what's best for your game. And if, if the coach you're talking to is a woman, go hire her, you know, it doesn't really matter. Uh, and I, I, give, I give Andy credit for that, you know, it was a bold move, it was a decision that was criticized, uh, uh, people laughed about it, uh, I don't think all the opponents that lost to him in the last 12 months laugh about it anymore
2: another question
0: oh, I think we maybe go to this guy oh, hi Boris um, firstly uh, huge fan uh, I was fortunate Thank enough you. to the first tennis match I ever went to was the Wimbledon final in 97 oh, exactly. so yeah. obviously Great. wrong result but I remember yeah. uh, you know um, I was reading through the iBook uh, this morning when I, when yeah. I booked it and uh, and I'd like to think I know a little bit about you and the rest of it. But what really struck me is some of the details which I'd never read before. When you were going through it, um, you, you know, the making mm-hmm. of the book, did you yourself sort of almost
1: remember memories mm-hmm. that you had previously forgotten? Well, when you're in the middle middle of it, uh, meaning middle of a tennis tournament, and then you give an interview afterwards you're very protective of, of the insights and the the difficult moments you go through because you don't want your opponents to understand what you're going through and also you don't want the world to know um, and i'm not not the type of guy that lives in the past i've never watched an old video of mine i've never watched you a know, speech of mine i i live in a moment i think think for the future obviously because of my my heritage so uh when the decision was made that it's 30 years and maybe i should should you know remember uh, uh, in, a, in a nice, you know, friendly way, in an honest way uh, about uh, uh, what women meant to you then and what it means to you now, uh, you start remembering and you take your time and it's a process, you know, book, book takes a while, where you go through the nitty-gritty and with a bit of, of distance to it you understand that, you know, those were unbelievable times, but they're also difficult times and I think uh, 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 it's my responsibility to share that to to teach other 17-year-olds and 18-year-olds what it was like. Uh, uh, plus, also, you know, when you are that much in the spotlight, now and then you want to have the record straight, just just for memory's sake. Uh, I'm still young enough to remember what happened 30 years ago. Ask me in 10 years, I, I would have forgotten most of it. So, um, and I dedicated this this book to my four children because eventually they're old enough, and they may have a question or two. As I said, you know, we, we're not getting any younger, so this is, this is for memory's sake. Uh, uh, they they you know, have a father that, that won Wimbledon a few times, and, and, and calls Wimbledon his home, and I want, want them to know why that is.
2: Glorious. I think we had a, a question here in the front, row.
1: Hi, Boris. Hello. Honored to meet you. Thank you. Um, um,
0: a few people wanted me to ask you this question. Um, what would you regard as the best match you ever played where you thought you were like unbeatable and also the opposite, what was the worst match you ever played and you walked off court thinking, my God, should I quit?
1: (laughs) I have forgotten that. (laughs) Um, The best match, uh, very difficult to say. I've played over a thousand matches. Uh, I've won over 750 matches of that, uh, each match was important, whether it was a first round, a second round, or a final. And I, I keep really saying that because I mean it. You know, Wimbledon final isn't one on that final Sunday. It's one on some practice court at 10 o'clock in the morning. It's a windy day, nobody's watching, and, and your knees hurt. That's when you learn the determination and the desire and the attitude, what it takes to win a Wimbledon final. Uh, so. All the matches I've played, I, I, I wouldn't want to miss for the world. The ones I've lost, I've forgotten. Um, I'm a bad loser. It takes me a long time to overcome that. Yeah. Um, uh, it, I've had some tough losses, of course. Uh, I didn't win, you know, I was in seven in finals. I lost four. Uh, uh, I've never won the French Open. Uh, uh, you know, I, I could have been number one a lot longer, potentially. But on the other hand, I'm, I'm, I'm you know, totally. Um, blessed, really, that I've, I've made my passion my job. Uh, very few people can, can say that. And I've, I've got to travel all around the world. i met amazing people. And I was winning more than I was losing. So bottom line, you know, I'm, I'm a lucky guy.
2: Where do you keep all of your awards, Boris? Are they, do they have center stage at home? Are they on the mantelpiece, or are they in the downstairs? No,
1: no. Uh, if you are in museums, uh, uh, in the Tennis Hall of Fame in Rhode Island. Uh, Germany um, has a view. Um, my mother has others. Yeah. Uh, in my home, I hardly have any. And and you know, when I have friends and everything, they're almost disappointed that you know, all the trophies. You know, I thought you. Oh, yeah. Uh, uh, but I, I again, I'm not, I'm not the type of guy that that needs to see it every day. How much I've won, to to have a smile on my face. You know, it was good while I did it, but today. My, my life is a little different and I, I like talking about it. you know, the, the book was important to me, but it's not something I have to share every day of, of the rest of my life. Lovely. Do you have
2: a, a final question for Boris?
1: This gentleman um, here? Oh. I'll we document. make two questions.
2: Oh, a yeah, yep.
1: lady and a man, yeah? Yeah, let's go. Thank you. Hello, first of all. Uh, I have two questions. One requires a very short answer. Uh, may I ask both of them or should I choose one over the other? One or the other? A second one requires a very short answer. Okay, i give, okay, you, I give you a short answer. <laughs> I'll start with the longer one. Okay. Uh, Boris, at 17, you won Wibleton. By the age of 24, you had won almost everything. Um, I wanted to ask you, uh,
0: do you think uh, there are dangers in uh, very early success? And uh, would you prefer your success had come at a later point in life?
1: If I would have had the same outcome, yes. Uh, you know winning wimbledon at 17 was great in one hand but it put a lot of expectations and pressures on the other every match was considered another Wimbledon final and i, I for myself and then and I, for my opponents and, and the world media so i didn't think i would or i, I didn't uh, develop as freely and as naturally in the forthcoming years because of that because i was always measured against uh, was it luck? Was it was it you know if the famous 15 minutes the guy had, or is he really that good? Um, I probably would have won more if my first Grand Slam win would have come at 20 or 21, and I had those two or three years as a learning curve and as, as just trying out. So some 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 of the things that I I didn't didn't allow myself anymore. Um, and the second question. <coughs> the second- the second is, what is the first word that comes in your mind when you think of Novak Djokovic? Ah. Two words, class act.
2: Ah, good answer. Hmm. <laughs> Great question. And uh, let's cross over here to this lady that had a question, I think, Please. Yeah, the glasses.
1: Yeah. This um, question is going to come through the sign language interpreter. OK. She's saying, oh, OK.
0: Well, first of all, wow, that was a r- real honour to hear some of your stories. Um, so, yeah, it's very unusual to, um, to have an interpreter to see what you, you, um, you were talking about, really. So I've got two questions, if that's OK. Firstly, is about the book that you wrote. Um, obviously, you're not a writer, or you haven't been. Did you write it really quickly? Did you find it really difficult? Did you have a ghostwriter that came and helped you? How did you actually achieve the book?
1: I'd like to think I have a few talents. Um, (laughs) Writing books is not one of them. I'm very honest about that. I had a wonderful ghostwriter. He became a close friend of mine. Uh, We shared many afternoons and many nights, uh, because I have to open my, my soul to him. He really needs to understand. Uh, uh, why I want to say whatever I said. Um, I think he did a very good job. Um, His advantage was that he's fluent in English and in German. Uh, I'm not 100% perfect in English, so sometimes I had to ask him in German what that word meant in English, and he was able to translate it to me, and that really helped in the whole process. Uh, He's uh, a real tennis connoisseur he travels to tour for a long time. He was a journalist while I played. So we go back a long time. So he's seen, he's seen my, my journey in the last 20 years, 25 years. So I didn't have to explain to him the impact Wimbledon had on me.
0: I, I read recently that you are quite disappointed about the new rule about not being able to swear on court. <laughs> um, <laughs> I was wondering. Is there any transcript? Because back in my time, there wasn't any subtitles, so I never got to see you swearing on courts. <laughs> How <Where> can <laughs> I find a
1: transcript? <laughs> just, just watch one of these uh, old matches between McEnroe and Vaughan Connors. I would, I would um, suggest to turn off the volume a little bit because it's, 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 yeah, it's different type of English. Um, no, what I, what I meant was, uh, uh, you know, nowadays players get criticised that they're not personalities because they don't show emotions and I want to defend the players are saying they are great personalities but the rules don't allow them to show their true feelings because they get fine, they get penalty points, they get warnings so on the other hand, uh, tennis is becoming a family sport, you have lots of you know kids, young families, watch it and I think it's right that, that uh, they cannot just do whatever they want to do because they might do that so uh, But again, it's not the players' fault. It's the world we live in, Mm. and everything has to be very politically correct. Uh, They make a lot of money, they are role models, and they have to behave a certain way. But that doesn't mean they're not personalities. I think they are great personalities.
2: Yeah, that's a great point on which to end. Thank you, everyone, for coming. Thank you for your questions. Really interesting. And thank you, Boris. Such a wonderful session. And best of luck with the book. Thank you
1: very much. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Thank you.